Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the LSE. And I'm really delighted to um, welcome our speaker tonight, uh, Professor Nancy Fraser. Nancy Fraser is Professor of Politics and Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York, although right now she's the Walter Benjamin Chair at the Humboldt University in Berlin, and that's where she'll be speaking to us uh, from tonight. She's also, amongst many other things, a long-standing member of the editorial board of the New Left Review. She previously taught at Northwestern University in the United States, as well as in Germany, in France, in Spain in the Netherlands, and she's been a visiting fellow at a number of prestigious institutions, Cambridge University here in Britain, Stellenbosch in South Africa, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Wissenschaften von Menschen in Vienna, amongst others. And her work has been widely recognised. She has no less than four honorary doctorates from institutions in Europe and Latin America, She's been awarded the prize for social philosophy about a decade ago by the American Philosophical Association. And she's given numerous endowed lectures, such as the Tanner Lecture at Stanford University and amongst others, Miliband Lecture earlier here at the London School of Economics. Well, Nancy's written a formidably large number of books and articles on questions of social and political theory, questions of feminist theory, and also issues of critical thought and contemporary French and German thought in particular. And those works have been translated, I believe, into over 20 languages. So, I mean, there's really a worldwide audience for the arguments that she has made. Amongst her best-known work is her writing on questions of social justice, um, in which she considers the respective roles of and interaction between claims to redistribution and claims to recognition. I won't go through all her books because it would take up the whole uh, time, but her latest three books are these. Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto, which she's written with some other left-wing feminists. The old is dying and the new cannot be born. 2019, about the fracturing of neoliberalism, and forthcoming cannibal capitalism, which is out, I think, this September, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, from Verso. And it's the arguments in this book that she's going to discuss with us and develop tonight. Well, um, Nancy's going to be speaking for about 35 minutes or so, and we'll then have a similar amount of time for questions and discussion. But before I ask her to speak, can I ask all of you to join me in vicariously, at least, welcoming our speaker, Professor Nancy Fraser. Thank you so much, uh, Robin, for that very generous introduction and for inviting me to come back uh, to the LSE and to the Miliband program, even if it's in this somewhat uh, less than (laughs) personal way. Uh, thanks to for um, uh, uh, explaining to uh, the audience that um, 
I do have a new book uh, forthcoming. It's actually going to be out in October. So you are almost right. <laughs> and uh, it, it is called Accountable uh, Capitalism, How Our System is Destroying the Planet, Care, and Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. And I want to introduce it tonight, but um, in a, uh, a somewhat, um, let's say, uh, off-center way by uh, talking about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I, I want to give a kind of analysis of the pandemic that draws on this conception of cannibal capitalism. I hope it will serve both to clarify what's actually going on now in and around the pandemic or what has been going on, but I also hope it will serve to demonstrate the usefulness of this conception of cannibal capitalism. So I want to start uh, by simply observing something that I think all of you know, and that is we hear quite a lot and have been hearing quite a lot that COVID-19 has served as a sort of perverse diagnostic, that it has lit up all the fault lines in our society. And people speak especially about fault lines of gender and color and of nation and class. And I think this is absolutely right, but I wanna suggest that we are not hearing enough about the social system that generates those fault lines, even though I'll suggest it's the same social system that brought us the virus in the first place and that has blocked our efforts to deal with it. So my proposal is to try in effect, stop tiptoeing around and cut to the chase. What the pandemic actually diagnoses is the deep-seated dysfunctionality of capitalism. COVID, I'll argue, is a ver veritable orgy of capitalist irrationality and injustice. More than anything in recent memory, it discloses the system's multiple contradictions ecological, political, social, and economic. All of these, I will argue, are baked into a social order that incentivizes a profit-hungry class of owners to devour the essential conditions of their own existence and, uh, what's worse, of ours. It incentivizes them, in other words, to guzzle care work, to scarf up nature, to eviscerate public power, to wolf down the wealth of racialized populations and to suck dry the energy and creativity of all working people. Forgive me all these gustatory and cannibalizing metaphors. I think you'll see the point uh, soon enough. In any case, all those things that I just mentioned that are being guzzled by capital, these are all essential conditions of production and accumulation, as well as of life on the planet. And that's the rub. Capitalist society is structured in a way that virtually begs the profit makers to gobble all these things up for the sake of fattening their share prices, while absolving them of any obligation to replenish what they take or to repair what they damage. 
The effect is not only to leave a trail of wreckage across the globe, but also periodically to destabilize the entire jerry-built edifice of capitalist society. That's the gist of my argument. And I'm going to suggest that COVID offers a textbook demonstration of that proposition. The pandemic, as I said, is an orgy where all of capitalism's contradictions converge, where the cannibalization of nature, care work, and political capacity of peripheralized populations and working classes merge in a lethal binge. So I want to suggest that we cannot properly understand the pandemic without a proper understanding of capitalism. And that I shall claim is the understanding that capitalism is a cannibal. Let me explain. The word cannibalism has several meanings. The most familiar and the most concrete, the one I think that will occur first to most of you, is the ritual eating of human flesh by a human being. Now that usage is burdened by a very long racist history as the term was applied by a kind of inverted logic to black Africans who were on the receiving end of Euro imperial predation. So I have to confess, I feel a certain satisfaction in turning the tables and invoking the term here as a descriptor for the capitalist class, a group I want to show that feeds off of everyone else. But the term cannibalism also has a more abstract meaning which captures a deeper truth about our society. The verb to cannibalize means, and this is a dictionary definition, to deprive one facility or enterprise of an essential element of its functioning for the purpose of creating or sustaining another one. That I'm going to show is a fair approximation of the relation of capitalism's economy to its non-economic precincts, to the families and communities, habitats and ecosystems, state capacities and public powers, whose substance its economy consumes to engorge itself. There's also a specialized astronomical meaning of cannibalism. A celestial object is said to cannibalize another such object when it incorporates mass from the latter through gravitational attraction. That I want to show here too, is an apt characterization of the process by which capital draws into its orbit natural and social wealth from peripheral zones of the world system. And there is finally the Ouroboros, and that's the self-cannibalizing serpent that eats its own tail. I suspect that many of you have seen pictures of this, and it is in fact, uh, the uh, design for the cover of my book has just this image of the Ouroboros. Now, that's a fitting image, I think, for a system that is wired to devour the social, political, and natural bases of its own existence, which, as I said before, are also, unfortunately, the bases of our existence. All told, then, the cannibal metaphor offers several promising avenues 
for an analysis of capitalist society. It invites us to see that society as an institutionalized feeding frenzy in which the main course is us. Now, the word capitalism too cries out for clarification. Our received understandings focus much too single-mindedly on the system's official economy. They identify the core injustice of capitalist society with the exploitation of free-waged workers at the point of commodity production. And they designate the system's defining irrationality as its tendency to precipitate economic crises. These identifications are not so much wrong in my view as incomplete. Capitalist societies do indeed generate class exploitation and economic crises as a function of their structural dynamics. But they also give rise to additional injustices and irrationalities, which are equally structural and serious, but which fail to appear on the radar of received understandings. These extra economic defects of capitalist society are deeply implicated, I believe, in the present crisis. If we hope to interpret the latter correctly and to figure out how to overcome it, we need to develop a new expanded conception of capitalism that foregrounds not just the system's economy, but the relation of its economy to the latter's non-economic conditions of possibility. Let me mention four such non-economic conditions for the possibility of a capitalist economy. The first is social reproduction, or as many now call it, care work. Included here are all the activities that create, socialize, nurture, sustain, and replenish the human beings who occupy positions in the economy. You can't have a capitalist economy without workers who produce commodities under the aegis of for-profit enterprises. And you can't have them without caregivers who reproduce human beings in settings external to the official economy. Care work includes gestation, birthing, nursing, feeding, bathing, socializing, educating, healing, protecting, solacing. In short, everything essential to sustaining beings, namely us, who are at once biological and social. Historically, much of this work has been unwaged and performed by women, often in households, but also in communities, neighborhoods, and villages, in civil society associations, in public sector agencies, and increasingly nowadays in for-profit firms including private schools and private nursing or care homes. But wherever it's done, social reproduction is an indispensable precondition for producing commodities, making profit and accumulating capital. And yet capital goes to very great lengths to avoid paying for care work or failing that to pay as little as possible for it. Now that is a setup for trouble because capitalist societies incentivize business to free ride on care work with no obligation to replenish it, they entrench a deep-seated tendency to precipitate social reproductive crises, as well as a gender order that subordinates women. 
I'll return to that point later. A second precondition for a capitalist economy is ecological. Just as a capitalist economy depends on care work, so too it presupposes the availability of energy to power production, of material substrates, including so-called raw materials, for labor to transform. And let us not forget of sinks for absorbing production's waste. Capital relies in short on nature, in the sense first of specific substances that are inputted directly into production, and second of general environmental conditions such as breathable air, potable water, fertile soil, relatively stable sea levels, and a habitable climate. But again, there's the rub. By its very design, capitalist society incentivizes the owners to treat nature as a bottomless trove of treasure, there for the taking and infinitely self-regenerating, hence not needing replenishment or repair. Now this too, we have finally realized is a recipe for disaster. Capitalist societies institutionalize a structural tendency to ecological crisis, as well as profound disparities in vulnerability to the ensuing fallout, a point I'll also return to. In fact, those disparities point to a third condition of possibility for capital accumulation, and that is wealth commandeered from subjugated populations. Almost always racialized, such populations are designated for expropriation as opposed to exploitation. They've been deprived of state protection and of actionable rights. So their land and labor can be taken without remuneration and funneled into the circuits of accumulation. Expropriation is often seen as an early superseded feature of a system that piles up wealth by exploiting free workers in factories, but that's a mistake. Capitalist production would not be profitable without an ongoing stream of, of cheap inputs, including natural resources and unfree or dependent labor confiscated from populations who've been subjected through conquest, enslavement, unequal exchange, incarceration, or predatory debt, and who are therefore unable to fight back. It has been said that behind Manchester stood Mississippi, meaning that slave labor supplied the cheap raw cotton that fed the iconic textile mills at the dawn of industrialization. But the same is true today. Behind Cupertino stands Kinshasa, where lithium for batteries and coltan for iPhones are mined on the cheap, at times by enslaved Congolese children. In truth, capitalist society is necessarily imperialist, continuously creating defenseless populations for expropriation. Its economy doesn't work if everyone is paid wages that cover their true reproduction costs. It doesn't work, that is, without a global color line dividing populations that are merely exploitable from those that are downright expropriable. By institutionalizing that division, capitalism also entrenches imperialism 
and racial oppression. Now there is finally a fourth background condition for a capitalist economy, and that's public power, paradigmatically, but not only state power. Accumulation can't proceed without legal systems that guarantee private property and contractual exchange, nor without repressive forces that manage dissent, put down rebellions, and enforce the status hierarchies that enable corporations to expropriate racialized populations at home and abroad. Neither can the system function without public regulations and public goods, including infrastructures of various kinds and a stable money supply. Indispensable for accumulation, these things cannot be provided through the market, but only via the exercise of public power. Capital needs such power accordingly, but it is also primed to undermine it by evading taxes, weakening regulations, offshoring its operations, or capturing public agencies. The result is a set of built-in tensions between the economic and the political, and a deep-seated tendency in, uh, sorry, to political crisis. On the one hand, crises of governance, in which the system destroys its own capacity to manage the problems it generates. On the other hand, crises of hegemony, in which masses of people defect from politics as usual. And I'll come back to those points as well. Here, I want simply to conclude that in all four cases, capitalist societies institute contradictory relations between their economies and the latter's non-economic conditions of possibility. The result is a tangle of multiple crisis tendencies and multiple injustices, which have now converged in a cannibal capitalist orgy. And now I want to turn to the pandemic. Let's start first with nature, the site of the system's ecological contradiction. It was none other than capital's cannibalization of that vital support of its own existence, and indeed of ours, that exposed humans to SARS-CoV-2 in the first place. That's the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, and we know that it has, it was, has long been harbored by bats in remote caves. It made the zoonotic leap to us in 2019 by way of some yet unidentified bridging species, possibly pangolins. But what brought the bats into contact with that intermediary and what brought the latter into contact with us is already clear, namely the combined effects of global warming on the one hand and tropical deforestation on the other. What is also clear is that both of those processes are progeny of capital, driven by its insatiable hunger for profit. Together, they, that is global warming and tropical deforestation, eviscerated the habitats of innumerable species, triggering mass migrations, creating new proximities among previously distanced, but now distressed organisms and promoting novel transfers of pathogens among them. That dynamic 
had even before COVID already precipitated a spring of viral epidemics, each passed from bats or some other uh, original harboring species to humans by way of some amplifying host. So we had AIDS passed by a chimpanzee, Nipah, SARS, MERS, Ebola, and of course now COVID. The, the terrifying thing, of course, is that more such epidemics and pandemics will come. They are the non-accidental byproducts of a social order that puts nature at the mercy of capital. Incentivized, as I already suggested, to appropriate biophysical wealth as quickly and cheaply as possible with no responsibility for repair or replenishment. Those dedicated to amassing profit decimate rainforests and bombard the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. Hellbent on accumulation in every era, but massively empowered by neoliberalization, they let loose an escalating cascade of lethal plagues. Now, COVID's effects on humans would be horrific under any conditions, but they have been incalculably worsened by another strand of the present crisis, rooted in another structural contradiction of capitalist society, one that has also been sharpened to a fever pitch in the neoliberal era. It is, after all, not just nature that capital has cannibalized in this period, but also public power. That, too, is an essential ingredient of its diet, avidly consumed in every phase of the system's development, but devoured with special ferocity over the last 40 years. And that's the catch. The political capacities that financialized or neoliberal capital scorched on are precisely those we could have used to mitigate the pandemic. But well before the COVID outbreak, most states had already bowed to the demands of what they call the markets, which really means large corporations and global finance, the demands uh, to slash social spending, including in public health infrastructure and basic research. With a small number of exceptions, notably Cuba, they drew down stockpiles of life-saving equipment, they gutted diagnostic and tracing capacities, shrank coordination and treatment capacities. Disserated public health infrastructure, moreover, our rulers devolved vital healthcare functions to profit-driven providers and insurers, to pharmaceuticals and manufacturers. These firms, constitutionally uninterested in and unconstrained by the public interest, now control the lion's share of the world's health-related resources, the labor forces and raw materials, the machinery and production facilities, the supply chains and intellectual property, the research institutions and personnel, all the things which determine our fates, individual and collective. Committed to preserving their profit streams, they form a private force majeure that blocks concerted public action on behalf of humanity. The effects are tragic, but unsurprising. A social system that subjects matters of life and death to the so-called law of value was structurally primed from the get-go to abandon untold millions 
to COVID-19. But that's not all. The collapse of already weak public systems converged with another structural contradiction of capitalist society, the one centered on social reproduction. Always a staple of capitalist consumption, care work has been voraciously gobbled up by it in recent years. The same regime that divested from public care infrastructure also broke or weakened unions and drove down wages, compelling increased hours of paid work per household, including from primary caregivers. In other words, neoliberalism offloaded care work onto families and communities by slashing social provision at just the moment when it was commandeering the social energies we needed to perform it privately. The effect was to turn capitalism's inherent tendency to destabilize social reproduction into an acute care crunch. COVID's advent intensified this strand of crisis too, dumping major new care chores on families and communities, especially onto women who still do the lion's share of unpaid care work. Under lockdown, childcare and schooling shifted into people's homes, leaving parents to take on that burden on top of others in confined domestic spaces ill-suited to those purposes. Many employed women ended up quitting their jobs to care for kids and other relatives, while many others were laid off by employers. Both groups have faced major losses in position and pay if and when they rejoined the workforce. A third group, privileged to keep their jobs and to work remotely from home while also performing care work, including for housebound kids, had to take multitasking to new heights of craziness. A fourth group, not strictly delimited by gender, which a group that includes men, bears the honorific essential workers, but is paid a pittance and treated as disposable, required to brave the threat of infection daily, along with the threat uh, fear of bringing it home, in order to produce and distribute the stuff that enabled others to shelter in place. Now, in each of these cases, the work of social reproduction, now swollen by the pandemic, still falls largely to women, as it has in every phase of capitalism's history. But which women end up in which group depends on color and class. So let's look at those. Structural racism, I think, informs every aspect of the current crisis. At the global level, it colors the ecological strand we've seen as capital quenches its thirst for cheap nature by seizing land, energy, and mineral wealth from racialized populations who've been deprived of political protection and actionable rights. As I said, having been subjected variously to conquest, enslavement, genocide, and dispossession by debt, these populations now bear an undue share of the global environmental load. Disproportionately vulnerable to toxic dumping, to so-called natural disasters, and to multiple lethal impacts of global warming, they now find themselves last in line for vaccines and therapeutics. At the national level, meanwhile, 
race inflects the political and social reproductive strands of the crisis as communities of color have been denied access to conditions that promote health, to affordable high quality medical care, to clean water, to nutritious food, to safe working and living conditions and so on. So it's no wonder that their members are, were disproportionately and are disproportionately infected and killed by COVID. The reasons are not mysterious as many have noted, poverty and inferior healthcare, pre-existing medical conditions linked to stress, poor nutrition and exposure to toxins, over-representation in frontline jobs that cannot be performed remotely, lack of resources that would permit them to refuse unsafe work, lack of labor rights that would permit them to win protections, inferior housing and living arrangements that don't allow for social distancing and that facilitate transmission, diminished access to vaccines and therapeutics. Together, these conditions expanded the meaning of the slogan, Black Lives Matter, synergizing with its original reference to police violence and helping to fuel ongoing protests. Color, moreover, is deeply entwined with class in the capitalist world system generally and in the present period particularly. In fact, the two overlap considerably as that category essential worker shows. If we leave aside medical professionals, that designation covers migrant farm workers, immigrant meatpacking and slaughterhouse workers, Amazon warehouse pickers, UPS or DHL uh, drivers, nursing home aides, hospital cleaners, supermarket stockers and cashiers, gig workers who deliver groceries and takeout meals. Especially dangerous in COVID times, these jobs are mostly low-paid, non-unionized, and precarious, bereft of benefits and of labor protections, subject to intrusive supervision and relentless speed-up. Although others hold some of them too, they are disproportionately filled by women and people of color. Taken together, these jobs and those who perform them represent the face of the working class in financialized capitalism no longer epitomized by the figure of the white male miner, factory operative, or construction worker. That class now consists par paradigmatically of care workers, gig workers, and low-wage service workers. Paid less than the cost of their reproduction when paid at all, those who belong to this class are expropriated as well as exploited and COVID has exposed that dirty secret as well. By juxtaposing the essential character of that class's work to capital's systematic undervaluation of it, the pandemic testifies to another major contradiction of capitalist society, the inability of markets in labor power to accurately reckon the real worth of work. In general then, COVID is a veritable orgy of capitalist irrationality and injustice. By ratcheting up the system's inherent defects to the breaking point, it shines a piercing beam on all the structural contradictions of our society. 
dragging them out from the shadows and into the daylight, the pandemic reveals capital's inherent drive to cannibalize nature up to the very brink of planetary conflagration, to divert our capacities away from the truly essential work of social reproduction, to eviscerate public power to the point where it cannot solve the problems the system generates, to feed off the ever-decreasing wealth and health of racialized people, to not only exploit but also expropriate the working class. We could not ask, truly, for a better lesson in social theory. But now comes the hard part, putting their less, that lesson to work in political practice. It's time to figure out how to starve the beast and put an end once and for all to cannibal capitalism. Thank you very much for your attention. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much indeed. Um, just remind everyone in the audience that in these um, online seminars, the way we proceed is for you to ask questions through the Q&A. So do feel free to do that. Um, and if you indicate who, you, what your name is and where, where you're from and what institution you come from, that's nice too because it enables our online audience to have a sense of where the questions are coming from. I'm just going to start by asking you a question myself, um, Nancy. I mean, in your talk, you started by talking in a general way about some of the contradictions of capitalism, capitalism per se. Yes. But at other times, especially in the second half of the talk, you rather emphasised the impact of neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism. Right. And I'm just wondering what's happening with that difference. I mean, some of the arguments seem to apply simply to capitalism, um, and yet other times it seems to apply to neoliberalism. So is COVID a function of capitalism or is it a function of neoliberalism? Well, um, the idea, um, I, I've tried to identify here these four background conditions that capital uh, relies on in every phase. I would say the, these are sort of structural universals about capitalism of any kind. And um, the same is true of the sort of crisis tendencies associated with them. Left to its own devices, capital, I think, will simply gobble up uh, as much as it can in order to just you know, keep uh, accumulation going as fast as it can. That's, these, this, these are properties of capitalism in general. Now, um, I'm also interested in the history of capitalism and in how exactly these various contradictions are managed at, uh, and, and sort of finessed in different era until the managing and finessing doesn't work anymore, so to speak. So, because I think that there are different regimes of accumulation, we can talk about mercantile capitalism, about liberal colonial capitalism of the 19th century, social democratic or state-managed capitalism of the middle third of the 20th, 
and our current uh, financialized neoliberal regime. Um, basically, neoliberalism is, is closer to 19th century capitalism, I think, than to either of the other two. These are the, the two eras um, where there was um, much less um, regulatory uh, involvement, much, uh, many uh, fewer and, and, uh, and less successful attempts to restrain some of this, to protect families through, these things didn't work very well, but like protective legislation in the Victorian uh, era, for example. Uh, people were really worried uh, that uh, the unrestrained capitalism in, of that period was destroying the family, was polluting uh, cities, was um, uh, bleaching all the nutrients out of the soil and so on. Um, then we got as a reaction against that, an, an, an attempt at crisis management via social democracy or so-called New Deal capitalism in the United States, which wasn't perfect. A lot of people were excluded from its benefits. It was financed off the back of the third world largely and so on. But, um, uh, but it, it, it was a, uh, an attempt to soften the contradictions uh, largely by expanding public power's ability to set some limits. Uh, neoliberalism capitalism was, is, has brought the lifting of those limits and hence the sort of reinstitution of this unrestrained runaway train kind of stuff. And so um, I think that um, we are... Um, uh, 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 the COVID crisis reveals both the specificity of the rapaciousness of neoliberal capitalism, but also, in, I want to insist, in a deeper way, uh, we can see through it these more general problems that any regime of capitalism is going to have these temptations and um, and is not uh, going to be able to control them or rein them in for very long and not in a way that benefits everyone. Thank you very much. I mean, um, I'm just going to turn now to um, some questions from the audience. So first question here is from Asha Hurton, who's an Australian PhD student, who says, this was a fantastic talk. Thank you. How do we get out of this system? The question's building on your, your sort of the end of your talk. Can we change it from the inside or is a, in brackets, violent revolution the only answer? So here we have our classic question um, <laughs> for our classic analysis. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I don't, uh, let's, let's drop the word violent. I don't, I'm not going to go there. Um, basically, the question is reform versus uh, revolution. And um, I have to say that I want to uh, make a distinction between... Um, where we're trying to go, and then the transitional process. I do think that where we're trying to go is somewhat revolutionary, or where I want to see us go is somewhat revolutionary. I do think it involves, if not the complete abolition of uh, capitalism or of the dynamic of capital accumulation, then very, very severe constraints for example, um, 
something as serious as treating the surplus that we as a society, as collective humanity, produce through our efforts as genuine collective public property whose disposition has to be determined democratically and collectively, not as private profit to be appropriated, whose allocation is then determined by this insane logic of always trying to more, more, more. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty revolutionary uh, prospect, I think. Um, how do we get there? Well, I don't see, uh, um, I mean, I don't think we can think of uh, things like, you know, we're going to all get together and storm the Bastille or the Winter Palace or what was your, that famous movie uh, about burning down Parliament, <laughs> V, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't think that's a, uh, you know, uh, a good uh, picture. Uh, I think what we need to do is try to create a large um, movement or counter hegemonic block of different uh, constituencies in society, each of which has its own reasons for wanting some serious structural change, not always the same reasons as the other groups. But what I'm trying to do with this kind of analysis is design a, create a, a kind of a map on which um, people can locate themselves. I might right now feel that the most pressing issue for me is the, um, the undrinkable water in Flint, Michigan, if I'm living there and I'm, I'm an African-American. Someone else uh, might think it's the, um, the, the having to run around at, for, for to, between two and three jobs and, and leave my young children uh, with a key to, to let themselves in after school, right? We all have a, a different, we're all sort of suffering from this system, but not exactly in the same way. For me, the important thing is to help promote the understanding that there is one social system that is generating all of this. And that even though we experience it differently and have different priorities, we all share an interest in a deep structural transformation of that system. And so I think that it's, as in every uh, revolutionary situation, um, you're, you're, a revolutionary situation is by definition a crisis moment. I've, the, the talk implies that we are in a general crisis, a crisis of the whole social order in which all of these different contradictions are converging. It's not simply a sectoral crisis of, economics or, uh, you know, uh, politics or something else, but it's the whole show. And in times like that, people are um, much more inclined than in normal times to think outside the box. They're open to new ideas. Unfortunately, many of them are now gravitating to very, very bad new ideas, which involve a lot of persecutory scapegoating, uh, exclusionary uh, militarism, all, all uh, you know, uh, horrible stuff. Um, but if we had, uh, but there is also the, the prospect and lots of people interested in um, new ideas that are genuinely emancipatory. And we've seen in many countries over the last several years, 
they didn't quite pan out. We had Bernie Sanders in the United States. You had momentum and, and the, the Corbyn wing uh, of the Labour Party. Uh, Spain had Podemos for a short period. Greece had Syriza. Looks like Brazil might end up with Lula again. You know, there, there are lots of, uh, of things happening that are better than the very dark stuff that is, is um, easy to see. And there are lots of people in motion from Black Lives Matter to Me Too, to, I mean, even Amazon uh, workers voted just uh, last week to unionize a warehouse in, um, in Staten Island, New York. So um, there's a, there are a lot of people in motion who sense the need for some big change. And I think the, the route to change is to find a way, um, create a, a narrative. Um, I'm going back to sort of like the Stuart Hall Gramscian analogous of articulation and hegemony. How to articulate all these different claims and commands in a way that's coherent and that directs people to the deep structural system that underlies everything. Then um, you, you do that with some, some programmatic demands. You know, the, the Bolsheviks didn't uh, come to power uh, by saying, um, we're gonna expropriate um, uh, uh, capital. They came to power by saying peace, land, and bread, which was a, a formula intended to right, address some very pressing problems that could unite people. What is our, our equivalent of peace, land, and bread today? Uh, I, I, I don't know that, that, that I have exactly an answer, but it's gotta be something like decarbonization. Care is, is, is more, people are more important than profits. Uh, you know something we have to, we, we have to, uh, and then figure out how to concretize those. If uh, struggles with those kinds of agendas begin to actually win, you know, in a, 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 even a limited struggle, it emboldens people, it, it, it uh, gives them hope and, and, and then things become radi more radical and so in other words, I think that there is a, a process of um, which we hope if, if it goes well, involves reformist struggles that point beyond reformism. Andre Gortz, the French eco-socialist thinker once coined the phrase non-reformist reforms. I think that's a, uh, what he meant were, were reforms that uh, begin to uh, set in motion a trajectory that some reforms, you win them and it shuts things down. It's just a way of coping. Others actually open a path to something broader. And that's the sort of thing. So in other words, I'm trying to suggest that the, the usual way of thinking about reform versus revolution is much too simple. I do uh, think we want in the end a revolutionary change, but the path to it is through this kind of process of non-reformist reformism. Well, thank you very much. Uh, famously, the Austrian socialists set up a second and a half international, which was built around that proposition, revolution through reform. So maybe, um, maybe we should start that. Um, 
I was going to ask you a question about eco-socialism from an education manager, but I think you've sort of covered a bit of what that person asked. That was a very enthusiastic question, I should point out. I'm going to turn instead to a question from Adrian Lee, who asks, do we have to fear the evolution of state capitalism in the current climate? And I wonder if you could address that, because you were talking about China here, and more or less we I understood you to be talking about it as an instance of capitalism. So, and, and it, as you said, has uh, an intimate relationship to the origins of the COVID crisis. So what do you say about state capitalism and your analysis? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I'm very glad it was raised. Um, I mean, look, um, China is, is a real outlier at this point. Um, it, is, um, it has a, a large uh, uh, private sector, uh, and in that sense, uh, uh, has a lot of, of, of capitalism in it. It's deeply integrated in, into the capitalist world economy, but it also still has a very large state sector. The, for example, uh, its entire banking system is public. Nobody is making money off of uh, banking. Um, and it has other um, uh, important um, publicly owned industries. It's obviously um, uh, not at all a democratic country, um, although one shouldn't underestimate uh, the degree of um, pluralism, lim a limited pluralism within the Communist Party. There's a lot of different factions and uh, you know, caucuses and so on within the party, it, which internally, um, do debate. They're not allowed to express it externally through the democratic centralist, you know, uh, imperative. Um, China probably did as well. Maybe New Zealand uh, would be an, another case. China did as well as any country in uh, controlling COVID after those horrible couple of weeks in the beginning where it was, you know, uh, practicing denialism. Um, and it did that compared to the United States. I mean, you look at our death rates compared to China. Look at our infection rates compared to China. These are, we're not on the same order of magnitude. It's like living on two different planets. The reason is that whatever else we say about China, it, um, it's, a, it's a, uh, a country in which people actually at some level, but, but despite every gripe and grievance that they have, think that the, the state in matters of disease is to be trusted, listened to, and obeyed. There, the, the power has enough legitimacy. It's not democratic legitimacy. It's another kind of legitimacy. In the United States, there is you know, a, a, a kind of, um, you know, a cloud uh, of um, voluntarism, liber extreme libertarianism, don't tell me what to do. Uh, the, 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 there is, and neoliberalism didn't create this. It's an old story in America, but it has vastly exacerbated it. We've long had what uh, Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style in politics. It goes way back. Uh, but 
neoliberalism with its um, trashing of public power and its romance of the market and a free enterprise and, uh, you know, just took this libertarianism and put it on steroids. And as a result, we've, um, you know, uh, for all the reasons that I suggested, um, we've had, um, even though we did very well in uh, creating, uh, you know, the uh, Moderna uh, vaccine uh, and uh, the other vaccine, I want to say more about vaccines later. I hope we'll, we'll get a chance. But um, uh, they couldn't get people to take it. They couldn't get people to to to, to accept uh, lockdown uh, for. Uh, they couldn't get people to social distance. People would get into fights on airplanes because the flight attendants said they had to wear masks. They would start swinging, literally. So um, this is, I'm just trying to give a, a contrast about what I, why I think that the acceptance of the importance of public power. Now, we want public power to be democratic. Chinese public power is not democratic. So I'm not offering this as, as any kind of a model. State capitalism is, um, I suppose, a conceivable next step, but it's not going to solve anything. I mean, it's, it's, look, a lot of these populist, right-wing populist politicians who present themselves as strongmen and so on, in a sense, they are enacting in their own persons the um, a validation of public power, l'état c'est moi kind of thing. And um, a lot of, of course, a lot of them, when they get into power, all they really want to do is, 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 you know, upwardly redistribute wealth and, and, you know, expropriate it corruptly and so on and so forth. They don't, they don't really follow through on the kinds of public, good use of public power that we've been talking about here. But I, I do think that populism is a kind of um, insistence that the state should take care of us. And it, it has dropped the ball. Maybe, I, I, this will be strange to speak this way, but maybe the best right-wing populist in this respect is Marine Le Pen. Of course, though she's a racist and so on and so forth. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not you know, saying, uh, but, but you, you get the sense that uh, this is someone who really wants to build up the French welfare state for people of the right color and, uh, and, 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 uh, and origin and so on. So that's already, a, a, I think populism is a defection from neoliberalism, at, at, at least at some level. And it, it, it's possible that if populists of the Le Pen stripe did come to power here and there, you might see an attempt to build a new kind of state capitalism. It would be exclusionary, it would be chauvinistic, it would be racist. Um, the problem is that the, the cat is kind of out of the bag with global warming, with global health a crisis, and, uh, and now with you know, war and so on. Uh, so we can't deal with um, transnational and global problems with a bunch of different fortress capitalist states 
each trying to, you know, protect itself and keep out the others. Um, there might be folks who try to go that way, but it's not a solution. Uh, and I don't think it's any match really for the transnational power of global finance and mega corporations that are so, uh, can so easily evade any attempts to try to get control of them by a territorially tethered power. So I, uh, I think we're in for an interregnum period in, in the Gramscian sense. That's why I called that other little book, The Old is Dying, that, you know, the, the rest of the quote is the new cannot be born in the interregnum. We see all the morbid symptoms. And of course, the idea of symptoms and morbidity is more grist for this the COVID mill, but um, that's how I see it. Great. Listen, thank you. Um, I'll just ask you a sort of brief follow-up question that comes from Viamesh Thanki. Um, perhaps don't feel obliged to answer at such length, but it, it seems connected to what you were just saying because um, the questioner points out that New Zealand and Singapore and Taiwan were capitalist countries that also had um, very low um, outcomes in terms of morbidity and asks why did politicians in these countries, at least at the outset of the pandemic, respond so differently from the cases that you've been talking about, notably the United States? I mean, it, could it be something about US political culture rather than about Definitely. your capitalism? Definitely. These, they are, uh, this is the level at which political culture is, is very important. That's what I meant to suggest about the paranoid style and so on. We're at one extreme, maybe uh, China's at another New Zealand had the added uh, advantage of a geographical <laughs> right uh, uh, distance from uh, much, much easier to sort of close things off and, uh, and so on and so forth. But you're right, Singapore and, uh, and Taiwan uh, did very, very well. And those um, are, um, are, were and, and, and still retain aspects of that, um, that sort of state capitalist model, that tiger, the, the tigers and all of that. So um, uh, that, that makes a difference. Uh, national particularities and political culture matter. Uh, I don't ever mean to suggest that everything can be reduced in a, in a very sort of crude homogenizing way to the kind of structural level that I've focused on. Okay, here's another question from Sam Pryke, who's from the University of Wolverhampton, currently um, in Liverpool in the UK. Um, a somewhat sceptical question, but gives you an opportunity to talk about COVID vaccines. Yeah. What about the fantastic creativity and ingenuity of capitalism, asks the questioner, not least with the respect to the invention of COVID vaccines. And, and, I, and I note in passing that China is now a bit sceptical about its, its vaccines. Yes, 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 with all the contradictions, injustice, exploitation and destruction, etc. What about what about that? Asks the questioner. Well, um, <clears throat> the, all the, the creativity that uh, went into the vaccines was quite phenomenal. But I don't think that capitalism deserves the credit for it. I think that modern science deserves the credit for it. And the, the, I mean, you had uh, AstraZeneca, uh, which was in, entirely, uh, as I understand it, uh, um, well, it was it was under public auspices, 
and um, it is um, made itself uh, has been made available uh, without um, intellectual property uh, restrictions. So this shows you that there's another way to do this. Incidentally, um, I spoke about Moderna before. Uh, Moderna, um, many of, uh, uh, of, of the important contributions that made the Moderna vaccine possible were based on research done 15 years ago at the National Institutes of Health in the United States under public auspices. And um, Moderna had one piece of the puzzle that they used and put together with their research. Moderna is a tiny company. Uh, but so to me, it's especially infuriating that Moderna has recently filed a patent application for that vaccine, which does not list any of the scientists working for the National Institutes of Health as patent holders, only its own scientists. Whether this will be accepted uh, in the vetting process, I have no idea, but it's, it's a kind of theft, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, we, we heard a lot about um, how the, the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and, and Moderna ones, were superior and there were those early issues about AstraZeneca and so on, and those doubts about um, the Chinese vaccine. Um, and I just assumed that that was all right, that mRNA really was the best. I've changed my mind about that. Um, there is now data, we can't be absolutely um, sure uh, we can trust it, but there is data that many, many scientists do trust that show that the Sputnik vaccine is very, very good, has uh, something like a 93 or 94% effective rate. Um, we now know that AstraZeneca is very, very good, despite some initial difficulties. I think that the, um, the two mRNA vaccines, I now see that as boutique medicine. You know, extremely expensive, curated for the wealthy people in the wealthy countries. They will never be made available. They won't license any of the Indian companies who are completely competent to manufacture. They won't let anyone else make it. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of like, even though I had those vaccines myself and was protected by them, and I'm grateful for that. I'm really wondering um, whether this is another thing about the, another hype about the superiority of the private to the public. Just a question. In any case, um, you know, public funded science can do great things. It has put human beings on the moon. It invented the internet. It does all kinds of things that we rely on that you know, capital has come in afterwards and, and scooped up and, and turned a profit on. We don't need uh, private uh, profit-oriented research with all of the intellectual property issues it raises. All of this can be done publicly with all kinds of incentives for people to, to want to do it. Thanks. Um, there's uh, three or four questions here that allude to the situation in Ukraine and the role of Russia and the war 
And although you haven't addressed that explicitly, the questions all are framed in a way that connects with what you're saying. So I'll just read out one of them. Inara Ali Khan asks, do you have any opinions on capitalism's role in the conflict and the war in Ukraine? And um, does your analysis about COVID asks a different question uh, shed any light on that situation? Well, um, I've got, I definitely have uh, some, some views about this. It's, um, but, you know, capitalism, as Emmanuel Wallerstein famously said, is a kind of a complicated beast because you've got essentially a world economy that is superimposed on or superimposed under uh, an international system of multiple states. So the, 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 the you could say there's a kind of a mismatch in scale between the globalized state of the world economy and the, um, the fact of multiple territorial uh, states. So there's always a geopolitical dimension to how capitalism is institutionalized in any period. I'm personally quite fond of Giovanni Arrighi's analysis of a succession of global hegemons. He goes back to, to Venice, to the Dutch, to Britain, to the United States. In each of, of the phases of capitalism that I mentioned earlier, you get uh, one hegemonic power that sort of organizes the geopolitical dimension of things in such a way as to permit the expansion of, of capital accumulation. Right now, um, we are in, a, in a, another awkward period. Another form of our crisis has to do with the place of the United States as I would say a declining hegemon and the rise of China as a not yet, you know, risen hegemon and one that at the moment is um, not, is being a bit uh, shyer or coy about stepping out, right? And really uh, wanting to operate on that level. The United States' decline seems to me uh, to be a part of this story. It, it's, um, it's a power that is um, economically a debtor country to China. Um, it's a country whose wealth at the moment is largely paper. Uh, the wealth that's being generated, you know, is, is largely paper fictitious uh, financialized wealth. Um, it's, um, its moral authority, I think, is shot through, you know, Vietnam, WMD in Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, it's been, there's been one foreign policy debacle after another. And the United States has much more trouble than it had like in the post-World War II era to, um, you know, actually hold itself out as a leader who, that's not simply out for itself, but operates geopolitically on behalf of a whole system, so to speak. And that's what hegemony is. You, you, you're, you become hegemonic 
by being able to speak for the whole and not appearing as a self-interested, self-dealing right power. The United States has a harder time. The only plane on which its power is really secure is uh, on hardware, military hardware. And that's only one of th three uh, pillars of hegemony. You need the economic power, the military power, and the moral uh, authority. All it has at the moment really is the military. And that uh, is a very uh, tense situation. The other the thing is that the, the military is tied up in a very, very direct way with the arms industry, with the so-called military industrial complex, which, by the way, doesn't really operate on pure capitalist principles because the state makes contracts with uh, war um, arms makers um, at, with guaranteed profit cost plus 10 percent or something like that. This is not exactly a market. Now, granted, they sell stuff to other people on a market basis. So, but anyway, there's a, a very uh, important uh, and powerful uh, arms industry here, which is, you know, having a ball right now. But let me just get to uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, Russia's, if, if the U.S. is declining power, Russia's even worse. I mean, Russia is a truly declined power. And in a way, it, it's, it's acting out almost in the way the U.S. acted out in the invasion of Iraq, you know, just trying to use a, a crisis. So there's something really uh, off about this whole thing. But um, the, the, what I'm about to say is, is I want to be very careful here. Well, I'm in a context where if you say anything about the deeper, uh, longer term causes, people think you're you know, pro-Putin or something. I want to be very <laughs> clear that the war is horrific. The brutality uh, with which it's being conducted is horrific. The invasion is, is criminal and so on and so forth. Um, what I think is important geopolitically, though, is um, the whole history of 1989 and forward. Um, Gorbachev handed us the sort of gift that well, you don't get what once every five hundred years or something of a, a right a, a, of a self <laughs> deinstituting power uh, that op would open a possibility to bring Russia into Europe where it actually does belong where where it is located. Um, and to create a, a, a new world order. And essentially, the US, and with some of its allies agreeing and others not, basically decided to keep this Cold War alliance, NATO, which was an anti-Russian alliance, in force. It's as if in 1945, the allies had sort of kept their armies mobilized against the defeated Germany instead of trying to rebuild it and bringing it back into Europe. Something like, I, I think that the, the whole policy of NATO expansion 
up closer and closer and closer. Um, I think that and, and NATO basically means the U.S., let's face it. Um, I think that, that that's a huge part of the picture in terms of how we got to this point. And uh, I only hope that now there is behind the scenes real diplomatic activity going on, trying to figure out a way to end this. All we hear is bellicosity. And I'm saying this, you know, I'm living in a country, I'm not sure what it's like there, but you know, this, this is, is a country where that paranoid style is out again now. There is intense Russophobia. It's kind of like um, McCarthyism almost. So, you know, the, the Metropolitan Opera canceled Anna Deprenko and substituted the Ukrainian singer for her. Maybe the Ukrainian singer is very good. I don't know. But what does Anna Deprenko have to do with anything? Uh, the, you know, I could give you a million examples of this kind of cancellation culture that uh, is going on. And I, can't, I have um, directed the dissertations of a half a dozen Russian students at the New School who are now in prison uh, for anti-war activism. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a, a, a level of, um, of uh, you know, you see what I'm saying. So I'm very upset about this whole situation, both about, uh, I think a left position has to be something like, and I don't know how to translate this into policy, no to Putin, no to NATO. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, there's a, there's a summary of the position. Um, uh, we're, gonna, we're getting close to the end. So um, if, if I could just ask to have slightly shorter answers so I can get in I'm a sorry. couple more questions. No, no, it's fine. But just um, because there are many, many people wanting to ask questions, there's no way we can answer, ask them all. But there is a, a question here from uh, a high school student in Highgate, Albi Gavishon, and we're always very pleased to have questions from uh, high school students in the audience who um, thanks you very much for your insightful talk and asks, how would you reconcile? How would a anti-capitalist movement reconcile the conflicting interests between the global South and North? Wouldn't any social democratic project in the global North require some expropriation of the resources of the global South? There are a number of other questions that ask about the global South, but I'll just put that one to you. That's a great question. Thank you so much, Albie. Um, I actually don't think it would uh, require um, expropriation of the global South. I think um, quite the opposite, that, um, look, any socialist or social democratic uh, system today is going to inherit a huge bill for unpaid costs. All of those decades and even a couple of hundred years of not right, repairing and replenishing the environmental damage of not repair, repairing and re replenishing uh, the, the history, the legacies of expropriation, enslavement, conquest, indigenous genocide, and so on. I, I think it's the other way around. I think that we're going to have to figure out how to re 
redirect the flow the other way because a socialist society has to, um, at, uh, even to, to, to move us forward, has to at least repair the damage that we are now living with and suffering from, which of course affects everyone. It may be the most immediate existentially uh, threatening for people who live in a third world, you know, in, in, in Bangladesh with uh, horrific flooding or, or something like that. But this is a, a global ecological crisis. It, it, you know, they, we're past the point where we can rob Peter to pay Paul. It, it's got to be uh, the other way around. I would see the reverse flow of uh, wealth at this point. Okay, there, there, there's so many questions here. I'm, I'm just going to um, put one which I think captures some of them, um, but just put it in my own words. Um, so epidemics have arisen throughout human history. Um, for example, you know, a well-known book by Jared Diamond, for example, talks about them thousands of years ago. Clearly there weren't capitalist systems all through that time. So how does your analysis about the role of capitalism in the production of the COVID problem um, how is it compatible with this observation that there's this much longer history of epidemics? Well, um, from what I can see, um, it's a question of sort of scale and speed. Capitalism is a, is, is a, uh, operates on a global scale there. Everything spreads much more quickly and, uh, there's a, it, it operates on a very quick, speeded up time basis. So there's a, there's a kind of, of rash, a spate, one after another of these things. It's not like one comes along every thousand years or something like that. And um, of course, the, the science of viral transmission is gonna be the same throughout every period of human history. But what changes are the mechanics of, uh, of, of um, well, the zoonotic transfers, how, how many of these happen, how quickly, and the, the speed of deforestation and of greenhouse gas emissions. This is all, all in a kind of, a, a, in the blink of an eye compared to the long durée that, that Diamond and others are writing about. And it's, it's, it's happening very fast and it spreads very far. That's what's new and that's, uh, it means that we need to have a social system that is much more careful about intrusion into wilderness areas that doesn't just cut everything down and pour cement over everything, much more um, careful uh, uh, about, again, uh, about GHGs and so on. Thanks. Um, we are getting close to the end. I'll ask you this um, one, one last question here from um, Brandon Fitzgerald, who's an MSc student at University College London who asks, has the COVID-19 pandemic revealed any previously unknown or understudied aspects of capitalism? Or has the pandemic mostly confirmed aspects, contradictions and failures already familiar to Marxist theorists and others? 
Well, I can tell you that I um, developed this, the outlines of my whole account of cannibal capitalism long before COVID. <laughs> so um, uh, I, uh, I think that, that much of, of what I have said here is known, maybe not widely enough, but um, maybe not and maybe not put together quite in the same way. But a lot of feminists know about the crisis of care and about the free riding on care work and capitalism. A lot of anti-racists and anti-imperialists know about expropriation or so-called primitive accumulation, that that is an ongoing and central uh, mechanism of capitalism. Uh, a lot of people uh, know, at least in the neoliberal era, that that financialization hollows out public power. You have in the UK, Colin Crouch is a, one of the great analysts of this. We have Wendy Brown in the United States and, and others. So, you know, parts of this are known, whether anyone has put it all together in exactly the way I'm doing, I, I, am, I don't believe. Uh, but I did figure out how to put this together before COVID. And so for me, as I said, COVID is a textbook demonstration of something that, you know, I think a lot of us have understood at least parts of before. And uh, yeah, that's the best answer. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I mean, we've heard about guzzling, gobbling, wolfing down, sucking dry. There's an elementary theory of um, the social system. Um, but more seriously, I think you've made a, a strong case for why we can't understand COVID without understanding something about capitalism and that we can't understand capitalism in turn without understanding it in what you describe as a, having a certain cannibalistic quality. And you, you went on to make uh, the argument that it's not just about economic crises and exploitation, that capitalism understood in that way is incomplete. And you set out four other elements of it which were um, integral to understanding it. If you understand it that way, you argued you can see that the snake has been eating its own tail. Thank you very, very much for joining us in the Ralph Miliband program and putting these arguments before our audience today. Can you all join me again vicariously in thanking our speaker, Professor Nancy Fraser? Well, I'd like to thank you. Uh, I'm not sure if we're still... <laughs> I, I can still like hear you. And all the audience for the great questions. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.